Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. With the daily discussions regarding climate change and rising sea levels, one may forget one of the first environmental crises that the world needed to come together to stop, the hole in the ozone layer. Today's guest has not only never forgotten, but he has been a leader in combating the increase of the ozone hole ever since it was discovered in the 70s. Paul Newman is a chief scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and is the co-chair of the scientific assessment panel to the Montreal Protocol. Newman has recently taken the scientific spotlight as a main voice in the new PBS special about the ozone hole and what it has done for healing. Now he lends his voice to our podcast today. Paul, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hey, thanks for asking me. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when I tell people about the ozone layer or someone reaches out to me, I immediately say, go to Paul Newman at NASA. Uh, I, I want to set that up because Paul really is uh, uh, one of the top experts on this subject and, and many other su- subjects as it relates to atmospheric chemistry. He's a former colleague of mine, actually, at NASA Goddard as well. So we've known each other for a while. So it's an honor to have 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 you on. Uh I want to jump right in, Paul, because there was a recent PBS special uh, that you've been involved with. It's called Ozone Hole, How We Saved the Planet. Uh, Is that title a hyperbole or did we save the planet with the ozone hole and the science related to it? It it really is a remarkable achievement um, that we discovered that these compounds called chlorofluorocarbons were building up back in the, they were, they were invented for refrigeration purposes and air conditioning purposes. They were building up in the atmosphere um, through the 1970s and, and two scientists, uh, Mario Molina and Sherry Rowland, um, pointed out that, that there was no, um, they were just accumulating in the atmosphere and there was no sink for these compounds. The only place where, where they were destroyed was in the upper stratosphere. And when they were destroyed, they released chlorine atoms that could then attack the ozone layer. Now, the reason we care about that is because ozone is is one of the Earth's natural um, defense mechanisms against uh, solar um, radiation, ultraviolet radiation in particular. Ultraviolet radiation Uh, is intense enough that it can break the bonds of biologically active molecules, in particular things like DNA. Um, And so UV can actually, uh, in fact, life on the Earth's surface couldn't develop until the Earth formed an ozone layer uh, to screen this UV radiation. UV can actually sterilize, um, well, it's used in hospitals to sterilize instruments. So um, UV is a is a uh, is a pretty lethal form of radiation. It, in in doses, it can lead to skin cancer, cataracts, can reduce crop yields, um, degrades uh, various substances. Back in the day, you know your your windshield used to crack because of exposure to UV radiation. Now they coat um, you know the dashboards so that those dashboards don't crack anymore. 
uh, with with a, a, a UV um, uh, uh, material that prevents UV from from degrading uh, the dashboard. But uh, it's a pretty lethal form of radiation. Now these CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, were building up in the atmosphere. They released their chlorine that attacked ozone. So this was identified in the 19, 1974 by um, Sherry Rowland and Mario Molino. Um, so then in, in 1985, we discovered there were some massive losses of ozone over Antarctica. And, and the losses are, are literally continental in scale. And we call that thing the ozone hole. Um, the ozone hole uh, is, is, it was getting bigger than the entire continent of North America. Um, so it was a huge and very large depletion of ozone. We flew, uh, NASA flew a U-2 spy plane into the ozone hole. It goes up high enough where you can just fly right into the stratosphere and measure uh, this depletion. And, and we showed that it was due to these chlorofluorocarbons. So then um, the nations of the world actually acted. They acted in 1987. They wrote an agreement called the Montreal Protocol which controls the consumption and production of these chlorofluorocarbons and, and a few other compounds too that, that also are ozone depleting substances. And that actually stopped the growth of these CFCs in the atmosphere. The, the agreement, the Montreal Protocol, was strengthened over the years um, so that the compounds like chlorofluorocarbon 11, we, and we used to, and others like chlorofluorocarbon 12, CFC 12 was used in car air conditioners very extensively. And uh, those, those concentrations of those gases stopped growing. Uh, that was the first achievement of the Montreal Protocol. Within a couple of years, the growth of these compounds, which are pretty much growing uncontrollably, uh, stopped growing in our atmosphere. And uh, now observations that we have show that, that their levels in the atmosphere are actually declining. Now, this, uh, the compound chlorofluorocarbon-12, CFC-12, um, has a lifetime of about 100 years. So it accumulated pretty fast but it's gonna go away pretty slowly. Um, so uh, even though we stopped the ozone hole from any further growth, it's gonna take a long time before ozone actually recovers back to more natural levels. Yeah, that's uh, that, and so that's something that I often talk about, which is, you know, I, I believe the uh, Montreal Protocol that you talked about was the world's or one of the world's first global treaties to reduce uh, pollution. And I want to dig a little bit deeper in the podcast on this as we go forward, because there were, there were some ozone hole denial and skeptics as we see in the climate change discussion. So I want to sort of dig dig deep on those. Before I do that, now, now that Paul has given us that sort of introduction on the ozone hole, the ozone layer and why it's so important to us, let me just establish some of Paul's credentials for the listener. Uh, he's a chief scientist for Earth Sciences at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in the Earth Science Division. He's been at NASA since 1984 in different roles. Uh, in the late 1970s and early 80s, the information about the Antarctic ozone hole was just starting to gain traction. And so Paul really was one of the scientists at the forefront of this effort. Uh, he leads the Goddard Space Flight Center's effort to analyze data collected from NASA aircraft and, and remote sensing platforms such as satellites. And as I mentioned in the introduction, he's the co-chair of the scientific assessment panel to the Montreal Protocol of the United Nations. One last thing that I want to set up just to give you an insight on just how big of a deal Dr. Paul Newman is. He won the United Nations highest environmental honor, the Champions of Earth Award in 2007 
2017 for his pioneering work. So we're talking with someone today that knows the ozone hole, knows the ozone layer. One of the things that I want to set for the listeners, Paul, given that this is a, a show of uh, various backgrounds in terms of the listeners, talk about the sort of Jekyll and Hyde nature of ozone, because I think in the stratosphere, it's a good thing, but down here at the surface, it can be a bad thing. Talk about that. Yeah, so so in the in the atmospheric sciences community, we kind of talk about two kinds of ozone. Um, there's the uh, what we call the bad ozone and the good ozone. Now, the good ozone, um, we talk about the ozone layer. Most ozone, ninety percent of it on the planet, is uh, high above our heads, um, more than you know. 30,000, 50,000 feet. In fact, most of the concentration is you find is up closer to 80,000 feet above our heads. Um, so that's where you get the highest ozone levels. And in fact, the ozone levels at 80,000 feet are so high, it's lethal to breathe. Um, but that's okay because it screens UV radiation. So that's why we call it good ozone. It's the stratospheric ozone layer. Now down low, we have what we call the bad ozone. That's pollution. Okay, now ozone is a very, very reactive um, molecule. And when you breathe it in, it, it will react with the linings of your lungs. That's, that's pollution. So that's why when you hear about a code red day with very high ozone levels, um, you, you really should not be out there uh, jogging or uh, uh, just playing around outside. It's, it's not good for your lungs. Um, Fortunately, the United States has taken a lot of action over the years to control uh, the pollutants that lead to ozone production in, in, in cities and uh, around the country. Uh, that's a really good thing. So ozone levels have come down uh, at the surface for the bad ozone, the pollution in our cities. But yeah, you're correct, Marshall. There are two kinds of ozones. There's the, as you mentioned, the Jekyll and Hyde nature. Um, you know, the, the good stuff up high in the stratosphere and the bad stuff down low here in the troposphere. Yeah. Troposphere is the lower part of the atmosphere, by the way. Exactly. And yeah, yeah this is Weather Geek, so feel free uh, to use any terminology. And, I, and at times I'll, I'll definitely uh, jump in as well. So one of the things I, in to sort of setting up this sort of 30 to 40 minute geek out that Paul and I are going to have as two uh, colleagues here, um, the sun essentially emits energy in various wavelengths. Uh, it's part of the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, visible uh, UV or ultraviolet, which you've been hearing talking about heat or infrared as well, and, and many other sort of wavelengths as well. So um, at, at any given moment, we're, we're, we're getting sort of showered with that, that electromagnetic radiation. And as Paul just described, the ozone layer in the stratosphere is essentially because of its selective absorptivity to, to, to ozone is really our friend there. And when we started losing some of that ozone due to the mechanisms that uh, Dr. Newman described, we had a problem. Now, you mentioned the Montreal Protocol, but if I recall, at the time this came about and science, the science started suggesting that we had an issue here, um, there was some ozone denial uh, in policy spaces, in the public, perhaps even from some industries. Talk about that and then compare, contrast sort of what we're seeing in the climate discussion and what we learned from that whole sort of process. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, there were a lot of denialists back in the day, and, and let me give a, a little bit of background to that. You know, chlorofluorocarbons are amazing gases. Um, they were 
the use of them in in refrigerators and in uh, car air conditioners was developed by a guy named Thomas Midgley um, back in the 1920s. Uh, he had, uh, uh, well, without going into details, um, he came up with the idea, let's use these compounds. And the reason he chose CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, was because they are not, they're non-toxic, okay? So um, they are not carcinogenic. Uh, they don't burn. Um, he, at an American Chemical Society meeting, he, he did this incredibly dramatic demonstration of, of taking uh, a little, uh, little drink of a chlorofluorocarbon and then blowing out a candle, demonstrating that it was non-toxic, non, you know, not, you know, and not flammable. Um, so that's great for air conditioners. You know, you have this stuff in your car, and if it leaks, you want to know that it, or you have a refrigerator in your house, if it leaks, you want to know it won't kill you. So it was a great discovery. CFCs, and CFCs were used for everything. Um, many people are now sitting on chairs that have foam, you know, uh, foam um, uh, padding and so forth. That foam was blown with CFCs. Um, your old McDonald's containers, um, the, the foam packaging that your styrofoam cups were blown with CFCs. All the little foam cells in there contained CFCs because they had ter terrific insulating properties too. Um, I remember there was a great use of CFCs, which were, they would put a jacket, a, they would uh, get a can of beer, and they would, it had a double jacket, and the outer jacket was actually had CFC in it. And when you pop the top, you release the CFC, and it immediately, because it was under pressure, it immediately cooled off the can. So you didn't have to refrigerate your, your beer. You could just bring it along with you, pop the top of it, and it would cool down just like that. I mean, amazing uses of CFC. So this was a huge industry uh, that used these ozone-depleting substances. Um, building insulation, for example, contains foam uh, that is blown with CFC-11. Um, so it's an amazing, and I mentioned, you know, car air conditioners. Um, it was used as a solvents to clean automobile parts. I remember as a, as a young guy uh, fixing engines on cars, I would, you know, you'd pull a part off a car, be just caked in, in, you know, in solidified grease and everything. You'd dip it into a can of VEF-11 uh, and it would come out bright and shiny. It was amazing. Um, so this is a big industry. So there's a lot of money at stake here. So a scientist comes out with this paper, Molina and Roland come out with this paper, says that CFCs are accumulating and they could destroy uh, our ozone layer. And, and so people were very, we're talking about a, a, you know, billions of dollars of industry here. Um, and they're asking to turn on a dime. So it took, you know, of course there were a lot of people who were, who were saying, no, wait a minute, you know, let's just hold on here and figure out if this was right. So the Molina and Roland paper came out in 74. Um, by 1985, I mean, the science really had solidified. People had gone into the lab and looked at these chemicals and how they broke down, how they released chlorine. Balloon observations had been made that showed that, in fact, CFCs did um, degrade in the, in the stratosphere. So there was a lot of work going on in there. But there were a lot of people um, uh, who, who were simply skeptics. Uh, they came up with and uh, every reason in the world how, how this science couldn't possibly be right. Um, now there, and, and of course, there were legitimate concerns too. And I think, you know, in the end, it actually strengthened the science by 
confronting the skeptics. Um, so, and, and I and I use the word skeptics in 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 the honest way that they see a piece of science come out and their first reaction is, now wait a minute, I'm not sure that this is actually correct. Why don't we go back and do a double take on this? Let's check it. Uh, there was a lot of, of what I call good skepticism. But then there was a lot of, of what, uh, what you called the denialism. Um, and the denialism, I think, is actually pretty bad. That is, uh, when you, uh, eventually you have to take a look at the information and, and and draw a conclusion that it's 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 correct and and I'll actually I'll indict my own self here uh, back in the 1985 when the ozone hole was first discovered um, I actually believed it was due to some dynamical processes that is you're you're lifting low ozone containing air in the lower stratosphere which would cause uh, a, a lowering of ozone over Antarctica there was really three theories in in the in 1985 86 what, what were those theories i'm curious well there was three the one was the dynamical theory and and so you would lift low ozone air in the lower stratosphere and that would cause um, a lowering of ozone over antarctica so if you had a, a secular trend of lifting then you would get an appearance of a depletion second theory was um what was a solar theory is that increased nitrogen production from the sun uh, could lead to um, depletion, well, a lowering of ozone. But as the solar cycle changed, uh, that ozone would actually increase. And then the third one, the third theory, was the chlorine theory. That is, uh, chlorine was accumulating in the atmosphere. It was releasing chlorine atoms. Um, those chlorine atoms were, were released in the unique conditions of Antarctica to deplete ozone. So we took our U-2 spy plane down to, to Punta Arenas, right on the southern tip of, of South America, and flew it down over Antarctica, right into the middle of the ozone hole. And the, the uh, plane had a number of instruments on it. One was an instrument that measured nitrous oxide, laughing gas. And, and so you, you could test whether it was dynamics. If the laughing gas levels were very high, then it couldn't be the dynamical theory. And that's what it showed. It showed that the dynamical theory was wrong. Um, it also showed that, that the nitrogen compounds weren't at really high levels. But one thing that it decisively showed that the chlorine levels were incredibly high and actually in forms that were very reactive with ozone. Chlorine monoxide is one in particular. It's an instrument built uh, at Harvard and flown on, on the NASA plane. Um, and it showed that these chlorine levels were incredibly high. And then when you balanced out the budget, you could see that those, those very high levels of chlorine were not natural levels. Um, so in just a few flights, the U-2 you know, smashed the dynamical theory. Now, when I saw that, I must admit, there was, there was a little bit of, of uh, on my part, I was a little chagrined that I was wrong. Uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, you, know, you have to move on. I mean, here's the evidence. Uh, it's very, very clear. Um, it's due to chlorine compounds. And so we kind of moved on from that. But some people, um, in spite of the evidence, continued to uh, say that, in fact, it, it, you know, these measurements were either not right or the measurements or ozone wasn't really going down or it could be due to volcanoes. Um, there was all sorts of, of, of what I call denialism, in which there's no real scientific evidence behind this, the denial statements um, and, and in fact, the denial statements uh, deny um, the truth of the science. 
So eventually, we, you know, everybody came around that, that uh, or all what I consider to be credible scientists came around to the idea that, yes, indeed, the ozone hole was caused by chlorine released from chlorofluorocarbons. One other compound I didn't mention was bromine. Um, bromine comes from a class of gases called halons. If you ever go to, in fact, halons are still uh, extensively out in the world. If you go to the airport and you're getting ready to board your plane, look, look to the sides and you'll see these green fire extinguisher tanks. Um, that is actually halon that's in those tanks. And, and in fact, most of the commercial uh, aircraft carry uh, gas halon 1301 as a fire suppression system in case there's a fire on board plane. So uh, some of these gases are very, very hard to replace. They're no longer being manufactured. They're recycled, but they're, they're still out there. In any case, um, so we had a lot of denialism. A lot of people believed that, that volcanoes uh, were causing ozone depletion. But in fact, um, we, we see volcanic eruptions quite easily in the stratosphere. They put uh, sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, and they form aerosols, which we measure by satellites. So we very closely track volcanoes. They suggested that maybe hydrogen chloride, HCl, was coming out of volcanoes, could be injected in the stratosphere, and we just don't see that. Uh, the measurements don't show that, so we know that it's not, not volcanoes. Uh, there are people who, who claim that CFCs are produced uh, in volcanoes, actually, and, and we've looked at that quite carefully, and no, CFCs are not uh, produced in volcanoes. Um, you can actually burn up CFCs, but it's called pyrolysis. And, and in fact, uh, that's the problem with the CFCs coming out of volcanoes. It, it doesn't. HCl comes out of a volcano, um, but it usually gets rained out. Uh, so, so there's lots and lots of these denialism arguments that go on, Marshall. But, um, you know, every time you look at them, um, you, you compile the evidence and, and uh, it just doesn't support any of these ideas. And there continues to be accumulating evidence um, that it was always due to the CFC. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Dr. Paul Newman, chief scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and one of the world's top experts on the ozone hole and ozone layer. Now, you are at NASA and you talked about uh, some of NASA's research aircraft, like the old ER-2, the old U-2 spy uh, planes, that I think NASA calls called them the ER-2. Um, talk to us about the importance of satellites and even some of the modeling efforts that NASA does, because I think a lot of people still don't know that NASA has a very robust Earth science program that studies the third planet from the sun and studies it from different perspectives. So why is it important that NASA's perspective has been in the game for the ozone hole? Well, NASA uh, originally um, started looking into ozone um, because ozone can be used to uh, do meteorology. Um, so you can look at the difference uh, between the tropics and the extra tropics, and, and, and the gradient between those two actually shows you where uh, the subtropical jet is located. So you have a strong gradient of ozone at the subtropical jet location. So you can use ozone 
Um, in the same way that we do what's called uh, cloud track winds, you can use ozone to do um, ozone. You can calculate a wind from ozone tracking. Um, so uh, this was the idea originally back in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, let's measure ozone, and, and we can use it for meteorological purposes. Uh, we've always known that, that very low ozone is associated with high-pressure systems. High ozone is, is associated with low-pressure systems, so you can spot highs and lows. Uh, so the idea was use ozone for meteorology. Um, but uh, there was... Uh, uh, in the early 1970s, they identified the idea of, of these supersonic transports and using high altitude, like the old Concorde, uh, to fly high, and they would emit nitrogen compounds, and that could lead to ozone depletion. Um, now, that was originally done by the Department of Transportation, but, but NASA, because of their ozone measurements and because they have people who are looking into the modeling of ozone, got involved in that. And then, of course, the projections of Molina and Rowland came along, but people also thought that ozone could be destroyed by um, the rocket motors um, emitting chlorine compounds um, into the stratosphere. That, In fact, the shuttle, there's a lot of worry that the space shuttle's uh, motors could destroy ozone. So people began to look at that quite carefully. This is in the 1970s. So NASA developed uh, not only the measurement capability from satellite, but also a modeling capability. You know, one of the, uh, the things that's not pointed out now, but was very apparent back in the 1970s, was that atmospheric uh, nuclear weapons tests could release large amounts of nitrogen that led to changes in ozone. Um, and so uh, it was also, um, you know, used to, to, to look for potential weapons tests in the atmosphere. So there was a lot of NASA work going on in the 1970s uh, to, to measure ozone. So then the, when, when the idea that ozone could be depleted came along, NASA took actually, um, was, was actually chartered. Uh, NASA's charter actually um, uh, mandates that we do uh, ozone research. Um, it's one of the few things that's actually written into NASA's charter that we are specifically supposed to do and supposed to send a report to Congress every couple of years. So both NASA and, and actually NOAA is on there too. We are chartered to do ozone research. Um, we're not chartered to go to the moon, but we are chartered to study ozone. It's, it's actually quite interesting um, how at that time people were so interested in ozone because they recognized of course, that it was the Earth's natural sunscreen, um, uh, to, to actually pay close attention to it. And now we have uh, satellites um, that give us daily pictures of ozone around the planet, so we, we actually can follow ozone quite closely now. Um, we can see how various atmospheric phenomena uh, change the ozone distribution. Um, we can track the trends of ozone, the data is now so good that, that we can identify a trend of 1% over a decade period. Um, that's a tenth of a percent per year. These, these data are of unbelievable quality uh, as they've developed since the, the early measurements made in the 1970s. Um, you mentioned the modeling capability. We have tremendous modeling capability here. Um, we actually run, the, these models are, are full chemistry climate simulations. Uh, so um, we can put uh, ozone, it turns out that these chlorofluorocarbons are also powerful greenhouse gases. So we can not only look at the ozone depletion of, of 
caused by CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, but we can actually look at their climate impacts. Um, these models are, you know, they're, they, they do the daily weather around the world. They simulate it so we can project out. Um, but we don't take a look at, you know, the, the local weather in the year 2050. Uh, we take a look sort of the averages. So what is the planet? What's the Earth actually doing in, in the stratosphere and down at the surface? How's the ocean? How's the ocean changing as chlorofluorocarbons disappear and, and greenhouse gases build up? Uh, these, these modeling capabilities are really tremendous. One of the unique things about NASA, though, is we pay really close attention uh, to matching, making sure that our models can actually simulate not only the, the current atmosphere, but the past atmosphere. So do we match up, does our model actually match up with what we've seen in the past? Um, that is really of critical importance to science and to NASA. So for example, when the Mount Pinatubo erupted in 1991, and put a huge amount of material into the stratosphere. Can we simulate the changes of ozone distribution and the stratosphere because of that eruption? Do we match, actually match uh, the observations? So we can simulate a, a cloud in the stratosphere of, of sulfur, um, and does, does our model evolve in the same way that we saw the observations evolve? And the answer to that is actually, yeah, pretty darn closely. Um, it's, it's a real... Um, you know, it's it's a real source of pride, I think, for for NASA in our country, um, that that we have tools like this to not only tell us what actually happened in the past, so do the forensics of these of the impacts of these gases and volcanic events and so forth, but actually that it gives us confidence that we can project into the future. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, we're talking with Dr. Paul Newman from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, and he co-chairs something called the Scientific Assessment Panel to the Montreal Protocol. Now, you issue reports, and I believe there, were, there was one issued in 2018 and 2014. Paul, talk to us about what the, sort, of the, sort of highlights of what those reports are saying, because people may not realize this, that although we have the Montreal Protocol in place, and you mentioned the residence times of the CFCs, and I also want to get your thoughts on HFCs as well, uh, we know that the ozone hole is still there, I, I, and I believe I understand this. Perhaps you can clarify for me. I think it kind of ebbs and flows throughout the year. It's not just always there. So talk about the seasonality of the ozone hole and sort of what you see from this point going forward with the ozone hole based on what you're reporting in these uh, SAP reports. Yeah. Um, well, first, let me talk about the assessments. Um, the Montreal Protocol, and, and I have to actually I have two hats. You mentioned the scientific assessment panel for the Montreal Protocol. That's a different hat than, than my NASA hat. Um, I'm actually uh, working for the Montreal Protocol. The Montreal Protocol is an agreement of uh, 198 countries. It's actually independent of the United Nations. You, you think it's part of the United Nations, but it's not. It's its own agreement. Um, they use the United Nations to manage 
the meetings and so forth, but, but the agreement really is run by these 198 countries. Um, and so I, I, in my scientific assessment panel role, I actually work for those 198 countries, not, not, for, not for NASA. Um, so I have a, a kind of a, and it's kind of an in-kind contribution by the U.S. government to the Montreal Protocol. But every four years, we are mandated by the Montreal Protocol to write a report on the, the ozone-depleting substances, like CFCs that cause ozone change. Um, how is ozone actually changing? Uh, and what are, what, what is the projections? What are the impacts? Um, explaining various phenomena. Uh, you have to realize that in the stratosphere, there, there are hundreds of gases and, and there are thousands of reactions of these gases um, that lead to the control of the ozone levels. And so we put out these reports uh, every four years to tell the countries of the world what what the Montreal Protocol uh, has done, what has it achieved, and, and how we see it moving forward. So, you know, one of the things they are, as you already mentioned, one of the things they're always interested in is, is the ozone hole. How is the ozone hole behaving? Um, and the, back in, um, you know, the assessment we wrote back in um, the year 2002, um, said that it looks like the ozone hole really isn't getting bigger. It's pretty big. Uh, you know, it was bigger than the continent of North America, but doesn't look like it's getting any bigger. Sort of good news there. Um, the, the, the 2010, 2014, and 2018 assessment in particular, this, this last assessment, we just published it in um, January. And, and this assessment involves uh, the work of a, of a few hundred scientists around the world. Uh, so this assessment actually says that, okay, it looks like the ozone hole is slowly getting smaller. So that was really great news. Um, the ozone-depleting substances stopped growing. They have been coming down, and the ozone hole is actually getting smaller. Now, that's a difficult thing to actually, we, if you look at surface observations, we've known that ozone-depleting substances haven't been increasing in the atmosphere since the 1990s. Uh, they're late 1990s, but the ozone hole, the, the response of the ozone, and, and so the ozone hole stopped growing pretty early, um, but the recovery has actually been quite small. As I mentioned earlier, the CFC lifetimes are, are very long. F12 is over 100 years, CFC 11 is about 55 years or so. So it's going to take a long time for the ozone hole to recover. Now we do see year-to-year -year variabilities. Um, the uh, the meteorological situation in, in the southern hemisphere winter is always variable. Um, some years are warmer, some years are colder. Uh, a, a warmer Antarctic winter um, actually is good for the ozone layer. A cold, a really cold, prolonged Antarctic winter in the stratosphere is actually bad for ozone. It leads to more depletion. Um, because it's so cold, you form clouds and they, they activate chlorine, that leads to more ozone loss. So we, we always look for, uh, the, the good thing for the Southern Hemisphere folk is that we have a very active, dynamic, um, warm winter. That, and that's true for the Northern Hemisphere too. Um, we see the same processes in the Northern Hemisphere that uh, cause the Antarctic ozone hole. Now the Northern Hemisphere has going for it the fact that it's a lot warmer in the Arctic stratosphere, which leads to less ozone depletion. So the Northern Hemisphere has a bit of an advantage. 
uh, over the uh, over the southern hemisphere. So that's why the, the hole has been most prominent over the southern hemisphere. Then that's right. Now, uh, one of the things I, I mentioned the modeling. We did a simulation a few years ago, back in two thousand nine, where we let CFCs just grow uncontrollably. Um, and we got up to a level of, of about what we call a... So we measure the number of molecules and say, a billion molecules. If you got up to about 55 chlorine atoms in a billion molecules of, of air, that would have led to uh, a loss of about two-thirds of the ozone layer, and there would have been an annual big Arctic ozone hole. Um, fortunately, the natural levels are only down around two, two chlorine atoms per billion um, molecules uh, of air. Um, and we got up to about four because of the, the manufacturing of, of, well, actually, no, about one natural. We got up to about four um, because of the manufacturing of chlorofluorocarbons. But that wasn't enough to really cause massive ozone depletion around the Earth. So... Uh, the great thing about the Montreal Protocol is it headed things off in in the nick of time. Um, so that was a, a really good thing. But uh, back to the ozone hole, I mean, we do see seasonality. Um, we had a pretty fair ozone hole this in in uh, 2018. Um, too early to say what 2019 is going to be like. Uh, and 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 I'm I, I don't do forecasts for the strat. Well, actually, I do forecasts for the strategy, but only a few days ahead of time. I uh, can't tell you what's going to happen in this in this next spring when the ozone hole forms up again. So the, uh, just a, a one more word about the assessments. Um, so like I mentioned, we, we just got done with the 2018 assessment, and we will do another in, in 2022. And uh, it's basically an accumulation of the best science and the newest observations over the last few years from the entire international community, ground stations, Satellites, aircraft, models, um, the, the laboratories to look at new chemicals. Uh, countries are always, their companies are always proposing new chemicals that they want to use in various industrial processes. And, and we take a close look at those chemicals to see what not only their ozone depleting capabilities are, but what do they do greenhouse gas wise? Um, we pay very close attention to, to greenhouse gases now. Um, one of the, the class chemicals you mentioned was, was hydrofluorocarbons. Um, these are HFCs. They have a hydrogen, fluorine, and carbon. Um, they don't have a chlorine, so they're much, much less ozone-depleting. They alter the stratosphere because they're actually pretty good greenhouse gases. So they actually lead to a, a warming of the stratosphere. So uh, HFCs, which, which were used as replacement compounds for CFCs, uh, are also building up in our atmosphere, and they're, they're pretty good greenhouse gas agents. But they have also been controlled under the Montreal Protocol, and, and industry is now moving towards gases, carrier gases, and technologies that are both ozone-friendly and climate-friendly. So the, the Montreal Protocol, even though it was signed in 1987, is an evolving agreement. Uh, in fact, originally the 1987 agreement it slowed down the production of, of chlorofluorocarbons, didn't stop the production. But as the science has improved, that is more every four years, we give them a new assessment and we add new information, the countries of the world pay attention to that 
And so they will write amendments to the Montreal Protocol. And so they've added, they've strengthened the, the agreements to control chlorofluorocarbons, and the result is those CFCs are decreasing. But they've also just written a, a new amendment, um, which was adopted in 2016 uh, in, in uh, Kigali, Rwanda, um, to control these hydrofluorocarbons. And so their greenhouse gas impact will probably go down, um, but, but that's up to somebody in the future to show in, in the new assessment. I, I won't be there to, to show HFCs decreasing and, and producing a reduced radiative forcing. Now, I want to I use this last three minutes or so talking with Paul Newman from NASA about ozone and CFCs and Montreal Protocol. Um, back in the 70s and 80s, mostly the 80s, I mean, you had the Reagan administration, you had the Bush administration. The Reagan administration eventually came around uh, on, on ozone and the Montreal Protocol. And you were just talking about uh, the amendments. I remember the, the Clean Air Act amendments of the 90s, I believe, 1990 or so. I believe actually President Bush was the one that signed that uh, Clean Air Act amendment in, into law in the United States, which actually uh, moved the U.S. Uh, sort of forward on sort of a uh, participating and uh, contributing to the Montreal Protocol and what it what it was asking the world to do. I want to fast forward in these last few minutes to climate change because we see some of the same things happening in terms of the skepticism and denial of some of the science. Uh, you as a scientist deal with public, you deal with policymakers, you deal with UN diplomats. What is your perspective or what are the lessons that we can learn from the ozone hole and ozone depletion that can be applied to the current climate change discussion? That's a good question. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm an optimist. Um, I think that uh, eventually, um, you know, countries are going to move towards the truth. And the truth is that Carbon dioxide, you know, it absorbs in the IR. There is, there hasn't been any dispute about that since the 1800s, um, and uh, you know there are other uh, gases that absorb in in the IR. Um, these are just facts. These are these are measurements you can make in the laboratory. You don't you don't need any complex mo models or observations to show, you know, atmospheric observations to show that CO2 absorbs in the IR. Um, the, the models are pretty definitive now, and the models are actually quite good, and they project that, in fact, the, the world is, is going to warm. Now, policymakers generally believe that. Um, and, in fact, as we see more and more things happen, you know, one of the things about the, the, the discovery of the Ant Antarctic ozone hole was, was luck. Um, that is, we're kind of lucky that it happened over Antarctica. Where uh, the most you know lethal increases of UV radiation actually have a fairly moderate impact on the surface. You know, if this had happened over North America and crop yields had gone down by a factor of two, imagine that happening in places like India and and China, where they barely you know barely grow enough to feed their own populations. If, if suddenly the amounts of growth went down. By fifty percent, it would be it would have enormous impact. Um, so, so we got a little bit lucky, um, but actually, the the optimistic part of it is that every nation has signed on to the Montreal Protocol. Every single nation, um, it, it's it's amazing. And when you go to these meetings, um, you know, I I 
have worked with industry folks um, and the policymakers. Uh, of course, we need jobs. We need air conditioners around the world. I mean, if you've ever been to a place like Dubai, the United Arab Emirates, or or uh, you know Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, um, you know North Africa, in the middle of the summer, you you know just a function. You need air conditioning. It's it's a part of our modern society. Um, refrigeration has made you know uh, foodstuffs. Um, uh, you know, so you you have in the middle of winter, you can have fresh tomatoes and strawberries in your refrigerator. It's a, it's amazing. They're preserved. They're they're brought. So people lead much better lives because of these technology developments. And in fact, they've moved into a world now where these. Technologies are actually safe for for the ozone layer and for climate, and, and so I'm an optimist here, Marshall. I think that eventually we're going to move in these directions. Now, I, I I'm and this is my own opinion. I I believe that eventually policymakers are going to see it that way, um, and they're going to move in that direction. So I'm I'm kind of an optimist about it. The the problem is. How long are we going to wait before we actually do the right thing? Um, and I'm, that's, that's what gives me a little bit of pause, because every, every molecule, it's like with the ozone issue, every molecule, chlorofluorocarbon molecule you release will lead to some ozone depletion. Um, and will countries abide by that? So we have to pay attention. Uh, scientists have, a, have, a, have almost a, a duty now to kind of act as... as um, the uh, the observers on the street. That is, let's make sure that uh, countries do what they and industries do what they promised to do, and and let's um, bring them around. But I'm I'm optimistic about it. I think that in the end, um, the science is going to bear out, uh, and countries are going to act in in the right direction. Now, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of hurdles on this. Everybody, you know, people have cars. There are cars all over the road every day. You see. You know, natural gas, which is mainly methane. Um, there's a lot of methane, natural gas usage, uh, but but you see more and more solar panels uh, as you travel. Um, you know, in various neighborhoods. So I'm kind of an optimist about it, but I see a lot of hiccups. And I, but I think the one thing that the Montreal Protocol actually proves is that nations will act. Um, I think there's no question, and I see all the disagreements amongst these various diplomats. Their country has these sorts of um, industries, and they have these sorts of needs, but they all acted together in the in the end. Yeah. Um, I, so I, I'm I'm going to be optimistic about. It. I think that industry is going to find technology. Countries will act. Um, then my only worry is that they won't act soon enough. Soon enough. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we can look back to the Montreal Protocol as a as a template for how to move forward, forward in this climate discussion as well. Uh, we're going to have to end it there, Paul. This has been an amazing discussion. Be sure to catch the uh, PBS special Ozone Hole, How We Save the Planet. Paul, I believe you're featured in that as, long as, uh, as well as some other colleagues we know. But uh, it's really been a pleasure to have you on the Weather Geeks podcast. And thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks, Marshall. Been great. And thank you always for listening to the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, be sure to uh, continue to follow us. Uh, subscribe on iTunes and We Love Weather TV, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast outlet. This has been the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Georgia.